1: Matt Boudreau.
0: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 292. You're listening to. My guest today is Jessica Paz, who's a Tony Award-winning sound designer for theater, film, and music. Most recently, she collaborated with Nevin Steinberg on the sound design for Anais Mitchell's acclaimed production, Hades Town which earned the duo a Tony Award, Drama Desk Award, and an Outer Critics Circle nomination. On Broadway, Jessica was an associate sound designer on projects including Dear Evan Hansen, Bandstand, Disaster the Musical, The Assembled Parties, and Fela. Her credits also include a a very large number of theater productions for shows like Little Shop of Horrors, Kiss My Aztec, Twelfth Night, Othello, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing, and she's also been a front of house engineer for musicians, including the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, Candy Shop Boys, Lady A, Stone Cold Fox, and the African Children's Choir. She has also been a lecturer of sound design in addition to student advisor for Princeton University's production of Next to Normal, and was also the sound designer of the Actors Studio Drama School's yearly master's thesis production from 2009 to 2014. Jessica came to us by way of our editor, Anne-Marie Plough. We got to thank Anne-Marie for that. Very much looking forward to bringing you this interview. Jessica Paz, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about cleaning up. If you've been listening to this show for any number of episodes, odds are you probably heard me talk about cleaning up the studio and how things have gotten a mess. Well, if you haven't, and this is your first time hearing it, things are a mess, and I've spent a large chunk of my morning here, it's Saturday morning as I record this, cleaning up. And you know, it's the same old thing. I know a lot of you are familiar with the, you know, the boxes of stuff that you haul around from place to place, and then you're moving the same old things around. There's stuff that I'm moving and moving and relocating, and I think, let me see, these, this stack of whatever it is, let's say. Uh, Blank CDs, or maybe it's CD refs that I've made over the past. Moving a stack of those from the studio, to the closet, to the shed, uh, to, you know, in a box, under the sink. uh, You know, trying to find a home for this stuff, you know. We've got a decent size house here but you know I don't have unlimited room. I don't live in the Midwest where I've got a 3000 square foot house and a matching basement. I don't. We've got what do we have here? I think we've got 17 1700 square feet. Yeah, that's about what we've got here. No basement, no garage, only a shed. Very small shed at that. So you kind of have to be choosy about what you hold on to. You know there's some boxes from products that i bought years ago that i think well i better hold on to those boxes because what if i have to send it in for repair yeah that doesn't happen all that often really it doesn't and i just i continue to hold on to the boxes anyway i'm going down another uh, a deeper rabbit hole than i should be so l- let me hit you to a few things if you're in the same position i'm gonna link to a product that I've talked about in the past. It's these Velcro strips. I don't know who makes them. I found them on Amazon. I'm gonna link to them in the show notes. I buy a whole bunch of them because I know that some of them are gonna break, some I'm gonna lose. And inevitably, every time I turn around, there's a cable to wrap and I need a piece of Velcro. And these Velcro strips come in various colors and I find them very useful. I find them uh, very helpful for getting cables under control because man, I, you know, You are the audience that would know what a monstrosity a batch of unwrapped cables could be, right? So there's that, there's the the cable wrapping. As I know you're stuck at home, many of you, and you're going through stuff, you're probably cleaning up and raising questions like, what am I gonna do with these hard drives that are like, I don't know, 320 gigabyte hard drives that you're not gonna use anymore because 320 gigabytes in the world of audio, maybe it's good for one project, maybe. But long term, you know, we're all buying one, two, four, eight terabyte drives. So there's that. I've got a couple drives here I've discovered are kind of questionable. Maybe they're almost a terabyte, but I just don't trust them. They've be they behaved in a way that I just don't trust. But what am I gonna do with those? I need to figure that out. And then of course you gotta go through the whole, I'm gonna wipe the drive and get all the data off. And you just have to set aside time for doing stuff like that. That's just no fun to me. And then Let's just talk about the digital pack rat nature of all of that. What do you do with the client stuff? You know, I've, I've talked about how I manage it and you know, I am not a saint and I'm not perfect at this, but I do my best. And that data management is, it's kind of a pain. It seems to reward me here and there over the years. I've had people come back and say, hey, do you have this project? As a matter of fact, I do. And then that opens up a whole can of worms of you know your involvement in a project. Anyways, yeah, the cleaning up thing—it's—it's um, it's very easy for little projects to linger. You know, I've got a couple of Raspberry Pis here and their power cables. I'm looking at some bad hard drives or questionable hard drives. I'm looking at power bank chargers. What else am I looking at? Well, it doesn't look so bad now because I've been spending the morning cleaning, but I should have taken a picture of it and posted it with this episode, doing a before and after, but I'm almost too embarrassed to do that. It was just so bad. And there was like bits and pieces of popcorn on the floor for when I bring a big bowl of popcorn in when I'm making a mix and doing a mix for somebody. And then, you know, inevitably popcorn just gets everywhere. So I had to come in here and do a serious vacuum. So anyhow, Opposed to these Velcro things, that's kind of the the big takeaway from this is uh, th- they're useful, they're helpful. I hope they can help you. Sadly, that's the only real thing that you're going to get out of this conversation. But I thought I would share that with you. So, um, you know, Saturday morning cleaning fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening. ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Jessica Paz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jessica, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm happy to be here. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. I think this is my fourth cup of coffee. So maybe one more (laughs) and I'll be folding paper bags.
1: You're doing two cups of coffee better than myself. These days, because it's so hot, I'm not drinking coffee. I'm drinking either a Coca-Cola or a Manhattan special when I wake up in the morning.
0: What's a Manhattan special?
1: Espresso soda.
0: Espresso soda.
1: (sighs) Yeah, it's a Brooklyn staple. I highly recommend, you know, some people don't like them because they're sweet, but it's a carbonated espresso soda. Hmm. And be careful when you open it, because sometimes they explode.
0: And is that something I can find here on the West Coast?
1: Maybe. I could do a little research after we end and see if I if I can point you in the proper direction.
0: That would be fantastic. That sounds like something I would enjoy. And I hate to say it, I think my 14-year-old son might enjoy it as well.
1: Well, I was just thinking this morning that instead of buying the Manhattan Specials from pizzerias, which is where you can usually find them, And it's a Brooklyn staple though because the Manhattan Special Factory is here just a couple blocks away from my house. But I was thinking this morning that I could make hot coffee, sweeten it, and then put it in a soda stream. Yes! And I would have espresso soda. It wouldn't be as strong, I don't think, Uh but this is something I can do. So you know what this means?
0: Is that there's a new business brewing right now?
1: No, it means that I'm just giving myself a justification to spend money on a soda stream.
0: I've been trying to talk my wife into one for a long time, and she's like, We don't need a soda stream.
1: I bought one on a whim. I had no idea what to buy my parents for Christmas. I went out to visit them for Christmas in San Diego, and I went to the mall the day before. I think it might have even been Christmas Eve. <laughs> and I, I was like, Oh, a soda stream. I'm gonna buy that. They love that thing. They use it constantly. Like they apparently use it every single day, is what I'm told. So I think that I need to, I think that I need to get one for myself. I,
0: I think you do. I think if there's a takeaway from this actual podcast, mm. Jessica's gonna get a soda stream.
1: That's exactly what's gonna happen. That is my contribution for the day.
0: Well, all right, so let's get into your backstory a little bit.
1: Mm.
0: When did audio? become significant for you in your life? When did it become something that really captured your imagination?
1: Oh, so not not when did it begin? This is actually an interesting question because I always get the, when did it begin? But when did it become significant for me? Yeah. I would say it became significant for me when I got my first professional job that was not in community theater, my first off-Broadway job as an assistant. So I, I did an off-Broadway show as an operator And then I got hired as the assistant for that designer. And I felt for the first time that like, oh, I might actually be able to make a living doing this. Hmm. Little did I know. (laughs) But I, I felt like, oh, this is working this is working, I'm, I'm being hired, not just by Rob Kaplowitz, but I'm being asked to design shows at the community theaters where I mixed. So I had a number of venues around Long Island. I was designing the entire school district of Lindbrook for all of their high school, middle school and elementary school shows. So I was making good money doing that. And I felt like, okay, I can do this. And then again, it took on even greater significance for me when Rob and I worked on Fela the musical in 2009 and brought it to, well, in 07, we did Off-Broadway, 07 and 08. And then in 09, we mounted it on Broadway. And I felt like, oh, yet again, I was like, I think this is working.
0: (laughs) So if I read you correctly, what you're saying is you had already been doing audio prior to doing sound design for theater. Is that, am I correct
1: in that? No, I began because the sound for a show I was stage managing in a community theater was super bad and just had like feedback all the time. And I pulled a friend aside and was like, can you please explain to me how to do a mic check? Because I can't stand this anymore. And he explained how you move the EQ knobs around on the input. And I went in and did a sound check with the cast that day before the show. And Mm. we- had a show without feedback for the first time and i was like oh hmm i wonder if i can make it even better still and so then i started mixing it and i put the person who was mixing it on the light board and that's it that's just like the rest is history
0: when when was that
1: that was yeah, 2000 i think
0: and what was your initial impression of it were you enamored by it or was it just purely like i have to do this to solve a problem
1: no, I was enamored by it because I was like, I have to figure out how to, all of this works. And I got recommended by a friend to start subbing in at another theater or another community theater on Long Island. And uh, within a few months became their permanent operator and mixer for all of their plays and musicals. And then within about six months of that, we were doing a production of Smoky Joe's Cafe and a friend was directing. And I went into my artistic director's office and I asked if I could design the show. He had someone who came in to sort of get every show set up. And I said, you know, I really want to design this show. I want you to give me that opportunity. And if after two days of tech, you're not happy with the results at that juncture, then you can bring Brian in and I won't take offense to it. And he said, yes. And he never brought Brian in. Poor Brian his loss. <laughs> he was actually just doing the doing the sound design for the theater as like a as a favor. Like he he had no real stake in it. He did it for fun and and for as a favor and then I became the resident designer at that theater for about a year and a half until them not being able to pay me on time just became too much of a strain for me and I I applied to an ad for a board op job for a labyrinth theater company show in Manhattan off Broadway and that was the first like true professional thing I did, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah.
0: So in the world of theater, you know, like any audio discipline, it seems that there's some different techniques and terminologies. And while we all Mm -hmm. generally use most of the same equipment, some things are slightly different in terms of the terminology or or the approach. So in Mm -hmm. theater, like you've used the word design a few times. We're talking sound design, I assume. Mm
1: -hmm. Tell Mm -hmm. me,
0: can you dissect it a bit Talk to me like I'm a fifth grader and how it works.
1: So you'd have design for a play or a musical. I'll talk about plays first. That's about content. It could be about composition. A lot of the shows that I work on, I'll do the sound design, which might be sound effects in the sound system. And then there might be an additional person on the team who is the composer, which I tend to like because I don't consider myself a composer. I can edit found music for days. I can music supervise, choosing music for a show as the sound designer, which I've done a bunch, but I definitely don't compose. So for a play, it's about finding and creating content. For a musical, it could also be about finding and creating content because musicals might require sound effects. But And for both, it is about designing the sound system that gets put in the space. I mean, when you walk into a commercial Broadway theater or even a commercial off-Broadway theater, all you get are four walls and a stage. So everything that gets brought in to help the sound of the show function is completely built custom and every stitch of it is brought in to my spec. From what microphones the actors are wearing or, or the snare drum is using to what adapters are in a box downstairs in the basement to what console we're using, how it gets programmed, et cetera and so on. That's the basic explanation.
0: Okay. And how complex can it get? And does it require more than one person to get involved to do the job?
1: Totally. So it'll start with, you know, a director or a producer will come to me and want to hire me for the project, and then I will put together a team of people, so to be myself, an associate, sometimes an associate and an assistant, sometimes, No associate and only an assistant. It depends on the show and the needs of it and what I need on my immediate team. And then there'll be the A1, which is the mixer, the engineer, who is also the head of the sound department once the show is up and running. There'll be an A2 who's in charge of all of the backstage happenings. So the radio mics for actors, interfacing with the bands on a daily basis, and maintenance of all of the equipment used for the show. Sometimes that includes instruments. For instance, on Hades Town, we have onstage instruments played by our characters, the Fates, any like in-air monitors or any of that that gets maintained by the A2 as well. During the production process, there'll be a production audio person who is in charge of the team that's on the ground actually installing the system in the theater and the team that's on the ground building that sound system in the shop prior to it being loaded into the theater. So we go into the sound shop, it gets built, it gets put together, it gets wired up, it gets tested, it gets taken apart, put in boxes, brought to the theater, put together again and then tested, and then we actually tune it and and then can start tech. So the production audio person hires the crew that builds that system in the shop and that loads in that system in the theater and interfaces with the head electrician, if it's a Broadway house, with the head electrician on who that crew is gonna be.
0: Wow, that's a lot of moving parts.
1: And then at the Delacorte on any given show, for something like our gala, where we have like 150 people in the cast performing that day, we'll have myself, an associate, a second associate, my design intern in A1 and four A2s, a production audio person that's also on site, and then like a half a dozen or so overhires that work just for the day. So the teams can get pretty, pretty large for events of that size.
0: And once again, like I'm a fifth grader, the terminology, A1, A2, tell mm. me about that.
1: The A1 is the person who will mix the show line by line. They're, you know, never having more than one microphone open at a time. They're programming the console and any of the of the cues necessary to make the show function. And they are essentially performing the sound of the show every day. The A2, like I said, takes care of everything backstage and the maintenance of the equipment, but will also train on the mix so that they can fill in should the A1 get sick? And then there'll be like an outside person who is a sub A2, who isn't on the show every day, but will come in to fill in for our A2, should they be sick or wanna take a day off or what have you.
0: I'm already intimidated just by the whole whole thing. <laughs> so you've been at this for almost 20 years. and. Yeah. Along the way, have there been mentors that you've looked to to kind of improve your game, step it up mm-hmm. over the years?
1: Rob Kaplowitz, to start. He was the first person to hire me as his board op and then as his assistant and eventually his associate. We worked together for eight years. And then later on, Mark Menard, who I was an assistant for, an associate for. I was his associate at the Delacourt, and I got promoted to designer after he sadly passed away, but he was he was like family to me. Mm. It was very sad to see him go, and so young. Nowadays, one of my greatest mentors is actually my partner on Hadestown, Nevin Steinberg.
0: So was the process and the number of people involved in the technology, how much has it changed over 20 years now that you've been in it?
1: Oh, boy. Well, I guess it's changed for me in the sense that I, I'm now working with budgets that far exceed anything I could have imagined. So I have access to equipment that I didn't have earlier on in my career with the, with the budgets for the shows that I was working on. But the technology is changing so fast. I mean, intercom is digital now. Everything is just moving toward digital. I haven't seen an analog mixing desk in years, hmm. years, like maybe a decade. Yeah, everything's moving to digital and to network. There's a lot of networked audio as well that's happening. So mm. we're constantly having to to learn. Now all of a sudden, we're not only audio engineers and technicians, but we have to be IT technicians as well. <laughs>
0: And is that basically, you know, when we're talking about networked audio, are we talking about essentially Dante or are there other things that are in use?
1: There's Dante, and then everyone has their own protocols like AVM uses A net. There's also MADI, there's AES, and then there is Meyer AVB. Then there's AVB, which is the newer one. But it's been out for a while. But yeah, there's there's a few protocols out there.
0: What have been the the stumbling blocks over the last 20 years? What are the things that stick out to you that Really challenged you?
1: Oh, it might have been the time that I was designing a show outdoors in Rowatan, Connecticut, another summer of Shakespeare. I've done so much Shakespeare and all of it outdoors, where it rained overnight and we came in to find our digital console had been flooded. (laughs) And there's definitely a photo of me and my assistant with it opened up and with hair dryers trying to get it back up and running. And ultimately we couldn't, it just got too flooded. So that was definitely a stumbling block. You know, being a woman in the industry is difficult. I would say that I don't necessarily feel like opportunities were kept from me, but I do feel like being the only woman in a room and being the associate and essentially being the boss is difficult when my entire team is comprised of men and a lot of them significantly older than me. Hmm. I was in my twenties. I just always felt somewhat uncomfortable. You know, it would have been nice to have other women on the team, and that may have been a mistake of mine in leaving those choices of who to hire up to others, and not realizing that I I had a say mm-hmm. in how the teams were built. But that that was a stumbling block. But I mean, I feel like there was one particular director that I just. Didn't really get along well with. We didn't have the same vision. And it was just a difficult process. But I, yeah, I wouldn't say there were any like stumbling blocks. There was a pause after Fela. Fela did Off-Broadway, Broadway, Broadway, London, a European tour that turned into a U.S. tour, a concert tour to Australia New Zealand, and it went to Nigeria, which I got to do. Mm. And sort of after Nigeria, that all fell off, and I, I kind of drifted away from theater a bit, and I started doing a lot of mixing at like Knitting Factory Brooklyn, Terminal 5, Glasslands. There was a bar down the street from my house where I mixed a bunch of bands, and they had I had like all these musicians in a couple times a week. And then I worked over at Sleep No More and the restaurant on the roof, the Green Gallows, and did a lot of their events and New Year's Eve parties and holiday parties and all of their bands and, and whatnot. I, I worked in their house bar as well as their resident sound person and before I sort of came back to theater, but I, I really value all of that time away. It was just a few years, it was like two or three years. Not It wasn't that long, but I, I really value it because it taught me, it just taught me a different way of looking at audio and looking at how to do sound that wasn't from a purely theater perspective, which informs my work now.
0: Now, after doing theater on that level and then going to do a band in a bar, I mean, that must be like a cakewalk.
1: You'd be surprised. Okay. (laughs) The thing about theater is we label everything. You know, when when, uh, you're at the knitting factory, you have five bands for the evening and you have a patch sheet that you have to memorize. And so I get all of these stage plots from the bands who maybe show up for soundcheck, maybe not. And I have to figure out, I have one sheet of paper and it's, it's all about a game of like, when you do a changeover from one band to another, unplugging the fewest things possible, right? So in my mind, it's like, okay, that drum kit is, becomes that drum kit, but for the second band, we added djembe, so we're gonna use that socket there. And the, Mm. what was a clarinet for this band is now gonna become a trumpet. And so that's gonna get repatched, but the line can be used for the same. So then at the desk, I've got to change that to say trumpet now. And you're, you're switching around things in a patch bay and nothing has labels on it. You're lucky if you have time to like put a piece of masking tape and write on something with a Sharpie marker. So I would just memorize the patch sheets before I walk up on stage to change over a band, but it's pretty fast paced.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. But interesting that you've done these two. I I consider them separate kind of audio disciplines, although Mm -hmm. closely related. When you came back to theater, did you bring anything from working with bands to theater that you learned? Or do the two types of disciplines inform one another in your mind?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way that I mix and process and bus and get band information into the console and out of the console is completely informed by working with bands. My ability to get a band to sound good, like at the sound check within the first ten minutes is like great because when you're mixing bands at knitting factory and they didn't show up for a sound check, they start playing the first song and you just have to be like dialing it all in and making it sound good within however long that first song is. So three and a half minutes, four minutes. Unless it's Afrobeat, and then it could be seven minutes, or 30
0: <laughs> minutes. <laughs> would, would you say that in the world of theater, things are much more organized?
1: Depends on what part of it that you're talking about.
0: In the part that you run?
1: We try to be, yes, yeah. yes. It's very organized. We have like databases that make us labels for every cable. We color code everything. No label is handwritten. The paperwork is... There's patch sheets for everything from our network switches to our console sockets to stage boxes to like, you name it. There's a patch sheet for our processors, all of it. It's all very, very meticulously built and labeled.
0: You said something that caught my attention. When when you put together a system and a package for a production, you mm-hmm. were talking about how... The system is built, tested, torn apart, delivered to the theater, put in place. So does that mean between two productions, that system doesn't stay in there? It's like, comes out?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the production of Hadestown brought in a bespoke sound system for that show. Hadestown will end. All of that equipment will get boxed up into a truck and go back to the shop. And then whatever show comes in after it will bring their own sound system, also a custom sound system.
0: And let's say for the production that's ended, do those parts of that system just get repurposed for the next production?
1: They I mean they can. If you if you know what the next production is going to be, you can sort of plan that out with the shop. But in the case of Hades Town, like we did the Canada production, we brought some equipment from the US, but we didn't know that Broadway was gonna happen yet. So it wasn't like we're like, oh, okay, we're gonna use this equipment from the canada production and on broadway and so we're going to build this sound system to accommodate the move because we just didn't have that information but i mean you could plan like if if it's like oh we're going to do a 6 month sit down at this theater in chicago and then we're going to pick the whole thing up and we're going to tour to two other venues and then land it on broadway where it's going to sit permanently i mean you can you can plan out that that sound system travels with the show for sure and then ends up on broadway or vice versa.
0: Okay. I can only imagine that when you're doing a large production, there's a ton of meetings, a lot of pre-production. You're not just showing up and running sound. You're you've got the script, you've got mm-hmm. you're embedded in it. Mm-hmm. And in that time period that you're kind of getting up up and running before the show debuts, do you lose a lot of sleep?
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm not even the one who has to mix it. I'm not even in the in the hottest of the hot seats, my A1, my engineer, who has to perform the show every day is really the one in the hot seat and and stays with the show and maintains the show. But no, I, I totally lose sleep. First of all, I lose sleep because the schedule's insane. I mean, we're in the theater. The crew gets in at eight in the morning. I get in at 10, which is coffee. And then we're in the theater till midnight. And then we do it all again the next day. Six days in a row. Maybe sometimes you're getting out of the theater at 10 30 if you're not doing a 10 out of 12 with the actors. But, and then when you get to previews, it's not any better. Maybe you can come in at 11 in the morning instead, but then you do a whole afternoon rehearsal. Then you got to sit around for three hours waiting, and go eat dinner somewhere, go meet up with friends, go run errands, go to meetings, whatever. And then you come back to the theater at eight o'clock to watch the show and note it. And so, even still, you're not getting home until midnight. Mm. So there, there's not a lot of sleep happening in the theater.
0: And does the union play a part in your crew?
1: In terms of the hours worked? So my union is USA 829, which is the designer's union, and they don't dictate specific hours or time frames for us. Local One, the IATSE for stagehands, does dictate what time they have to be in in the morning, which is why they're in at eight. And then the Actors' Equity, which represents the performers, determines how many hours we're allowed to rehearse with the actors per day, what their compensation is going to be, et cetera, and so on. So there's actually between IATSE Local 1 and Actors' Equity, which also governs stage managers, that's what determines the schedule day to day while we're in production. Once we get into show run, there still is influence there, but generally speaking, it's eight shows a week. We know what that schedule is. There's one or two put in rehearsals or rehearsals with actors who are understudies, et cetera. So it becomes a little more predictable.
0: Once you're in and you're doing a a show, financially speaking, it's a comfortable living, I'm assuming, or is it tight?
1: It has only gotten somewhat comfortable for me in the last three years. Prior to that, it was, It was tight, it was tight. And luckily I had a partner, so you know we were able to like, we're not together anymore, but she had a full-time job. So she was the regular income and my income was never, it never came in on every Thursday. It came in when people paid me. So essentially I was running my own business and I'm self-employed. I have an LLC that I use for tax purposes, et cetera. I have an agent and all of that. So it's tight, it was tight.
0: And did it get better because-
1: It got better because I was assisting at the Delacorte and I then was an associate on Disaster the Musical, which was on Broadway with Mark Menard before he passed away. And then I got a promotion to be the designer of the Delacorte, which was better money than being the assistant Mm. or associate. Okay. And then I started working with Nevin Steinberg and became associate on Dear Evan Hansen, for which we have launched Off-Broadway, Broadway, Toronto and tour and London, five productions of that. And I was his associate on Bandstand, the musical. So it really was the the move to being an associate at the commercial Broadway level that that made my income more comfortable. Okay. But prior to that, just designing or like mixing bands and music venues, just like does not, I love it enough that it doesn't matter that it doesn't quite cut it that it makes life difficult, but, you know, it doesn't pay great.
0: Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things, such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link. Get your 30% off and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app, Check it out. When you first got involved and you explained that situation about the feedback and jumping Mm -hmm. on board, tell me about your discovery of audio in what I would say is, well, actually you were in your twenties, right?
1: Yeah, I think I was 20.
0: Okay. Okay. And did you just fall in love with audio at that
1: point? Yeah, because it was a mystery to me and it was like, oh, I have to figure out how this works. And My attention span's not great. Like any job that I had prior to theater or sound for that matter, sound specifically. I was a bookkeeper for a while, which I did to supplement my income. I was an executive assistant, administrative assistant. I was the assistant manager of a scuba diving store. I went to college to study forensic psychology and dropped out after a year and a half. Like all of these jobs I had for no more than two years Mm. and none of them ever kept my attention but sound has kept my attention for 20 years
0: in those early days where did you go for knowledge to educate yourself about audio
1: the internet <laughs> I, I really didn't know anyone else who who worked in in sound uh, it wasn't until I started working in the city and moved away from community theater that I started to know other people who worked in sound and and had a sort of a peer group that I could go to. And then there was also this mailing list on some listserv somewhere that was like a bunch of sound people who asked each other questions. This is like kind of before Facebook groups and all that sort of thing. And now there's an organization called TSDCA, the Theatrical Sound Designers and Composers Association, which was formed around 2014 when the Tony for sound design got taken away. And now that organization of which I'm co-chair of the board has built this community of sound people. And so it's a community and a resource that was not available to me when I was learning. It just didn't exist.
0: Hmm. And at any point, has you considered leaving theatrical sound?
1: Every single time that I consider leaving, I get a promotion. (laughs) It's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Hey, do you want to design a Broadway show? Oh, damn it. (laughs) Yes, I do.
0: I was going to (laughs) leave. We'll pay you more money.
1: Or like I'd, I'd want to leave and then I'd get bumped from assistant to associate or I'd want to leave and I'd, I'd get like to go on tour with a cool band or I'd want to leave and, and Fela was doing a concert tour in New Zealand so I took it and, and you know it just it's really kind of funny how it happens but the minute I start getting serious about that thought some higher or better offer comes in.
0: You can never leave. Apparently not. Apparently not.
1: <laughs> I don't have a choice.
0: So you're also part of many organizations that I think many of my listeners are familiar with. Mm-hmm. How much advocacy do you do, you know, within these groups and, and spreading the word of audio? And how how important is that, do you feel?
1: I'm a member of Women's Audio Mission and Soundgirls.org and Maestra in support of their missions. I've done a panel with uh, colleagues of mine for Women's Audio Mission. I would love to be more involved with them. I just, other than these webinars, haven't really had the opportunity and only recently actually learned about them and became a member. I would say most of my advocacy is through TSDCA where I'm co-chair. We're just like working on all kinds of initiatives to bring educational opportunities to our members, to the community at large. Just yesterday, I actually taught an intro to sound design class. 260 people showed up, 408 signed up, but a lot of these free events usually only get about a 40 to 50% turnout. We got a little bit better than that, got about 60, 65. And that was made up of a lot of some sound people, but also a lot of musical directors and composers who work in the theater. And it was in partnership with Maestra and TSCCA co presenting. I was originally approached by Maestra to teach it. And then TSDCA came on as like co-presenter and we helped to promote it. So a lot of the advocacy that I'm doing is really through through the organization I'm co-chair of.
0: I gotta give credit where credit's due. Carrie Keys and Terry Winston are doing an outstanding job with both Sound Girls and, and Women's Audio Mission.
1: Yes. I actually just emailed Carrie at Sound Girls as having uh, mentorship opportunities. And I, I just emailed them saying that I would mentor someone. I also do a lot of, I spend a lot of time with as many early career members of TSCCA as I can as well. We, they do a Thursday night hangout. And so I'll, I'll often go to their Thursday night Zoom hangout and talk to them and keep up with what they're doing and figure out how I can be supportive and let them ask me questions, et cetera. And also just hang out with them because they're cool people.
0: Because it's fun to hang out.
1: Mm-hmm. From your perspective,
0: since your time going back 20 years and and now looking at where we're at now, do you feel that more women are getting involved in audio than they were before?
1: I certainly noticed more women. I mean, for the first 10 or 12 years of my career, I was very often the only woman in the room in terms of the sound people, right? It's true in other departments as well, directing on creative teams, the lighting teams, all of that. But I, I do... Notice an increase in in women's, yeah, in, in the presence of women, absolutely. It's, I think, still not enough, but it's more than it used to be.
0: And what do you think is the driving force of that, of that increase?
1: I think it's interest women being interested in the field. And I think that it's people like Nevin or myself noticing talent and, and hiring them to be on our teams and to help foster their steps through this crazy business mm-hmm. and help helping them grow. It's taking interns who've worked with me in past years that have done good work and have, have been curious and and want to succeed and want to step up and move forward of helping foster their careers so what i might do is they were an intern then maybe next time i hire them to be an a2 and then maybe the next time i hire you know to be an assistant and okay now they're ready to be an a1 and mix a show so i i keep lists of people in an excel spreadsheet <laughs> that i refer to whenever i need to build a team and I try to pull from, from those lists. Yeah. It's, it's about fostering young folks. Yeah. And not only, not only keeping them interested, but also helping them to be able to earn a living. Like they can't just intern for three or four years. You can't survive on that. So looking for and keeping opportunities in mind for them as they may come up. What
0: is your thought on people starting, whether men or women, starting later in life in audio and my example of that is my former guest sarah carter who used to work in the motor trade in the uk and then Mm -hmm. got involved in audio and wound up at the bbc but she was significantly older at that time when she got in compared to most who get in in their 20s and Mm -hmm. mid-20s do you have any thoughts on on people starting at a later date
1: get in where you fit in I mean, I just think yeah, get in where you fit in if you if you love it and you're good at it and people want to hire you to do it, do it. I think that's great.
0: Yeah, I always feel like when you have more experience as, as an adult and being older, you kind of know how to navigate a little little easier and get accepted possibly a little quicker because of of your experience and your age.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk about the elephant in the room, COVID. Mm. And Broadway, mm. what's the the state of affairs for you and and the people you work with?
1: I had the entire Delacorte season was canceled. I had three projects that I was working on prior to prior to the summer that got canceled. One while I was on site, I was actually traveling. I had given up my apartment, and I was I was in London for the fall, and then I was, and then I was in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and I had decided that since I was going to be traveling through May. There was no need for me to look for an apartment and then all of a sudden everything got shut down and my shows got canceled and I was like, oh my God, I don't have anywhere to live and I have no way to prove that I have work or income, right? So how am I going to find an apartment? And then my aunt called me and invited me to move back into my childhood home here in Williamsburg with her and my sister. So I'm here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn now. It was devastating. It was devastating. I mean, the beginning of it first is, is shock. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Broadway has never been shut down for more than a couple of days. And then all of a sudden, like, a week went by and two weeks went by. And you're like, this is this is really serious. And quarantine was We had to all, you know, lock down and stay home for months. And I felt myself sort of in a deep sense of like depression and despair and questioning because my entire life for the last 20 years has revolved around my career. I mean, family is very important, but there are sacrifices that I made in order to pursue the career that I wanted and that's paid off, but the price that you pay for that is that all of a sudden, I'm sitting here going, hmm, okay, so who am I? <laughs> who am I without theater? Oh, right, I like to do yoga. Oh, right, I, I also have a talent for drawing, so I should start drawing again. Oh, wait, I, I've always wanted to take those keyboard lessons I've never had time for. You know, It's like figuring out who you are all over again without this thing that has defined me. Right, Mm -hmm. and gave me gave me even a, a sense of my sense of value or self worth in in my industry and among my peers and my community. So that was a little a little bit tricky. I would maybe only get a week or two in between shows of time, and that that time would then be spent in my home office, like working on the next show. So it was like a an elongated and and larger example of like the two days off that I have. That are just for me in between one project and another, and sitting there on my couch wondering who I am. <laughs> it's like, oh right, go to a yoga class. That's what you like to do. Get your get your get your butt up and get over to yoga class, and, <laughs> and then that's my two days off. And then I like head down in the dirt again, back into tech and working on projects and having no time to do anything other than theater. It's just so. This is like was sort of a, a shock and and i hope that when we come back that there is a much improved work life balance but we'll see how the theater industry chooses to come back i think a lot of those conversations are happening right now
0: yeah it's it's uh, it's definitely a challenge and i could see that there's a lot of people hurting mentally financially across the board how do you navigate the financial end of it for the long term without projects regularly coming in? Or are you in the process of maybe planning projects for 2021?
1: I am in the process of planning some projects for 2021. I had a contract get sent to me yesterday and I have some irons in the fire for things that folks are gonna talk to me about once they have more solidified schedules. But I think everything is sort of up in the air because everyone thought, oh, well, theater will come back in the fall. And then all of a sudden, I think two weeks ago, they were like, nope, it's staying closed till January. Every shutdown, every extension of the shutdown is actually longer than the last one. So I don't know that I have tons of confidence that we're going to be able to come back in the winter or the spring either. I just don't know what that looks like. Hmm. And, And I think that Off-Broadway and in smaller regional theaters and the off-Broadway market actually has an easier point of re-entry than Broadway does because off-Broadway and regional theaters generally have smaller audiences. I don't know how you put 1,800 people in the Gershwin safely or the Delacorte for that matter. The financial model for theater already is so tight and it's so difficult for a show to be financially successful because it's so expensive to produce. And I just don't know that a a new model that is a socially distanced audience is viable financially. It's already so, the margin is so slim. Like how do you, how do you reduce to half of the audience and be able to pay your bills and stay up and running. I just don't know how that works. So there's a lot of conversations that need to happen between the unions and the league and the theater owners and the producers and like, and I know there's task force being built and discussions happening around how do we do this safely? Mm -hmm. How do we do this with a financial model that works? What changes are we going to make and what phases are we going to, are we going to, you know, phases for reopening New York, but we don't have phases for reopening the theater yet. Yeah. It's a lot of questions. It's a lot of questions.
0: It is. It's interesting. I went to a restaurant where I live here for the first time in months Mm -hmm. and we sat outside and I could see inside through the open windows. That was totally empty. And I just... I was asking a lot of the same questions. How does this model work for people, for restaurant Mm -hmm. owners, for theaters, for anybody that depends on capacity as Mm -hmm. the core of the business model? Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I don't have any answers. I just was asking questions like, what's going to happen? How is this all going to change? Will prices go up? Will a Broadway ticket shoot up 50% more?
1: I mean, I think where restaurants are concerned, I think rents need to go down because if restaurants are relying on capacity to make enough money to pay their expensive rents in in New York City and they can't now operate at capacity, then there has to be some shift, right? So maybe the rent gets lower so that to accommodate the fact that this restaurant can no longer bring in, but that's that's about land ownership and building ownership and, and whether or not owners of these spaces are willing to reduce the rent and sort of go with the flow on on this sort of thing and and have a vested interest in bringing things back to life.
0: Yeah, it's a as you peel back the layers of operation, it definitely goes deep and Mm -hmm. kind of goes back to, I I don't know how far deep it goes, but it's going to require maybe some legislation to possibly figure out. I don't know. I'm no expert by any means, but yeah, these are all good questions and, and thoughts to have. Well, we're almost out of time. Oh, Is it best to have people check you out at jessicapaz.com?
1: That is where you can reach me. And,
0: yeah. and you do say Paz, right?
1: Paz is the correct way to say it, but most people call me just Paz. Uh, so I will accept either pronunciation of my last name.
0: Uh, well, I grew up in New Mexico and we say Paz.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is Spanish. It means peace. I'm. I'm. My background is Italian, Spanish, and Swedish. My father was the Spanish and Swedish, which is why that's my last name, but... It just everyone said Paz my whole life, and so and then it became part of my nickname, and it just doesn't make sense to correct people. Yeah, because I like my nickname.
0: <laughs> Pat, you like Paz?
1: It's everyone calls me Jess Paz. Jess Paz. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, well, it was a pleasure having you on and talking to you about all this. And what I do look forward to is having another conversation, maybe a year from now, to see mm. where things are at and how things have changed and how we all have adapted.
1: That'd be great. Yeah. This has been great. I'm super glad to have been able to join you.
0: Yeah, well thank you so much. So listeners check the show notes. I'll put links to to Jessica's website, also to Women's Audio Mission and Soundgirls, two people running that or those organizations I really uh, really love and respect. So
1: And if you could include a link to tsdca.org as well, that would be great.
0: Consider it done. All right, Jessica, you take care. Jessica Paz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I want to thank Anne-Marie Plough for the editing, Cliff Truesdell for the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith for that booming voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, spread the word, tell all your friends, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,